Today we're continuing our summer series through the book of the Judges. And uh, as you've seen in the weeks prior, we're observing large chunks of Scripture. Today we're going to be observing chapters 8 and 9. Because of that, we're not opening our sermons with a reading from the text. Instead, we're reading the text throughout, the, much of the text throughout the sermon. So you will really benefit from opening up your Bible and keeping it open today to Judges chapters 8 and 9. Often great truths are conveyed in very simple ways. In the past decade or, decade or so, we've seen the viralization of internet memes. The reason why memes are so popular is because they often communicate truth in a, in a comic way, in a comedic way. One such meme is known as the Futurum of Fry, where the animated series character, Philip Fry, squints his eyes because he can't tell exactly what he's seeing or looking at. The meme says that sometimes two things that shouldn't look alike, sometimes they do look very much alike. If this meme was made to explain Judges 8 and 9, it would read, not sure if Israel or Canaan. The practices of Israel throughout the book of Judges are becoming so disconnected from the character of God that they are becoming virtually identical to the people of Canaan. Theologians call this the canonization of Israel. Today we're going to describe this process of canonization with the word decadence. The word decadence comes from the Latin word for fall, sink, or decay. At this point in the book, the judges are seeing the cycle of judges starting to really spiral out of control. And the decadence from the culture is not coming from the bottom up, it's coming from the top down. We've seen cycles of judges that were relatively moral and yet weak. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and Barak. Two weeks ago, we met Gideon, who was weak in his faith at first, but he grew. And by trusting in God, he accomplished great victories for Israel especially a great victory for Israel against the Midianites. We saw him defeat the armies of Midian by the deception that God provided. Though Israel had thousands of men, God sovereignly appointed 300. And these 300 men, average men, confused the Midianites and defeated them and Gideon and his men didn't even need to draw a sword. In chapter 8, the Midianites are defeated. But Gideon and his 300 men are still in hot pursuit. 
after the Midianite kings, Ziba and Zalmunna. In chapter 8, we're going to see more of the strength and the weakness of Gideon. But in chapter 9, that we're going to see later on today, we're also going to meet Gideon's son, Abimelech. Abimelech is one of the most wicked leaders Israel has ever had. We're going to see the sad story of a son who does not walk in the faith of his father. But this story is not hopeless because even in his weakness, Gideon points us to Christ who is strong. Even in his wickedness, Abimelech points us to Christ who is good. And so here's what I want you to walk away today with. In a world filled with weak and wicked leaders, we can always trust Christ who is strong and good. So we're going to have three points today. And first we're going to consider the leadership decadence. Second, we're going to consider religious decadence and then finally we're going to consider generational decadence so let's let's turn first to leadership decadence as we've seen Gideon is a puzzling figure he shows such great strength and perseverance as a warrior and yet such weak and wavering faith We see this very clearly in chapter 8. The chapter begins with a rift between Gideon and the men of Ephraim, but through diplomacy, Gideon appeases Ephraim. Gideon knows that his brothers are not his enemy, and this is important. As Christians, we need to be very careful with friendly fire. We want faithfulness in the church. But we don't want to view other brothers and sisters in Christ as enemies. We unite with other believers in the essence of the gospel. We affirm the goodness of every gospel-preaching church. Gideon here focuses on the real enemy, the kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, and look at the character of Gideon, exhausted and yet pursuing. So he says to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the, official, and the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? In other words, Gideon is saying, We're pursuing, 
We need strength. Help us. And the men of Sukkoth said, We won't help you. We'll give you a reward if you win, but you have not won the battle. Verse 7, So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. And from there he went to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, in other words, when I come again in victory, I will break down this tower. So what just happened here? The Gideon that we met in, child, in verses 1 through 3, the diplomatic Gideon, just promised to turn on his own people. He promised to attack his own people. He asked for food for his men because he's fighting against the enemy that is in common with all of Israel, but the men of Sukkoth and the men of Penuel all said the same thing. No. We won't help you. So Gideon promised to turn against them. Gideon promises friendly fire. So Gideon and his 300 men fought against 15,000 Midianites, the ones that were left, and they capture the kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. And when we see, and what we see from this point on is the decadence in the leadership of Gideon. In the heart of Gideon lived a dangerous sin. The sin is called vengeance. Vengeance is when we don't trust the Lord to correct the injustices we suffer. So we take justice in our own hands. It would have been the right thing for the men of Sukkoth and for the men of Penuel to give Gideon and his men food. Gideon was wronged. But Gideon wanted to avenge himself. Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is a problem because vengeance is void of faith. Faith is the primary characteristic of the people of God. And so what we see here is vengeance replacing faith. The Lord will right every wrong. We don't need to do that with our own hands. So look at how Gideon responds to his fellow Israelites in Sukkoth and Penuel in verse 16. And he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. That's an euphemism, by the way. He likely gave them a beating, if not killed them. Verse 17 and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed 
the men of the city. Gideon was raised by God to save the people of God. But now, Gideon himself is killing the very people he was called to save. Gideon was strong, but often our strengths are our weaknesses as well. Have you noticed in your marriage that sometimes the things that you loved about your spouse before you were married are the very things that irk you today? You know why? Because often our strengths are also our weakness. Gideon was a mighty man, a mighty warrior, and he was a force against the enemies of God. But he used his might to turn against the people of God. What is the difference? How can our strength really be strength and not weakness? The difference is whether or not we use our strength for the glory of God and the good of others. Did Gideon use his strength for the glory of God? No. Did he use his strength for the good of others? No. But when we do that, when we use our strength for the glory of God and the good of others, strength indeed is strength. But Gideon used his strength selfishly. And as we continue in the text, we see more vengeance coming from Gideon. He captures Ziba and Zalmunna and instructs his son to kill them. This was intended not to just bring about justice. This was intended to humiliate the kings of, the kings of Midian. Because a warrior is to be killed by a warrior and not by a child. His son lacks courage to kill them, so Gideon kills them himself. He executed justice himself. And here's why all this happened. Gideon took personally an offense that was against God. The men of Sukkoth and the men of Penuel didn't reject Gideon. Gideon was working as a representative of God. They rejected God himself. So instead of waiting on God to avenge himself, Gideon exercised vengeance by his own sword. Listen to what God says to Samuel when the people of Israel reject him when they ask for a king. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And this is important to remember, because we, too, are representatives of God. So when people reject us as we represent God, it is not us who they're rejecting. It is God himself. You know, sometimes we can become so enticed with the defense 
of God's name and we get involved in debates and we become keyboard warriors on the internet and we're saying all these things that we're not called to say. Is God not strong enough to defend His name? Is God not powerful enough to reveal who He truly is? You see, friends, the problem is that we want vengeance, but we want it right now. But God calls us to patiently wait because He will make every right wrong. So when we personalize the fight that is of God, we anticipate the vengeance that God would have, and we don't do it right. So instead of fighting our own fights, instead of defending our own cause, let us fight the fight of God. Here's what John, uh, Joel Beek, theologian, says. Fight God's battles. Don't confuse God's battles with our battles. Not your own. And you will discover that He will fight yours. God will defend our cause. God will defend Gideon. Christ did not take the cross personally, but he trusted the will of the Father through the suffering he endured. So Christians need to learn how to suffer well and not be vengeful. Suffer patiently, waiting for the justice of God to be displayed in its fullness. Those who belong to Christ must follow the example of Christ in suffering. And what is the example of Christ in suffering? Look at 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, example in suffering, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He, when he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus suffered unjustly. And yet, he did not take the cross personally. Instead, what did Jesus do? But Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who is that? The Son trusted the Father. That's the example that Jesus wants to set to us. Trust the Father. He judges justly. Perhaps you've been wrong in the past. Perhaps you've been a victim of fraud, abuse, infidelity. Perhaps you've just had really bad friends. And you're asking yourself, how can I bring about justice to the injustices I've experienced? And the answer is, you can't. You don't produce justice. Justice is not native in your heart. If you try to produce justice, you would, you would be just like Gideon. You would pay sin with sin. It is possible for us to be sinned against and responding sin. And we are wrong when we do that. That's exactly what Gideon did. He was sinned against, so he responded with sin. We must not do that. We must repay evil with good. 
we must repay sin with righteousness, in faith, in trust. The right response is not for us to personally pursue faith, or pursue, um, pursue justice, but for us to pursue faith. Trust that the Lord will right every wrong. Another Christian response is to forgive. To cancel the debt of those who come to you in repentance. We need to practice repentance and forgiveness. Friend, you must forgive anyone who comes to you in repentance. You know, I've come to realize that when I, I sense that my wife has wronged me in some way, one of my tendencies is to hold on to that wrong and think, I will use this against you when the time is right. That's not the way of Christ. We are not called to, to, to build up our ammunition towards those who are around us. Instead, we are called to forgive as we have been forgiven. This is the way of Christ. Forgive those who repent. But what about the unrepentant sinner? Should I forgive those who have not repented? Does God forgive the unrepentant sinner? He, he doesn't, does he? But God is always willing to forgive. And what we need to do is we need to have a predisposition to forgive anyone who has wronged us. We have to always be willing to forgive. The way of Christ is the way of faith and the way of forgiveness. As we continue our text, let us consider now religious decadence. So as a result of Gideon's power, might, conquest, the people of Israel wants to make Gideon king over them. Look at verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. In other words, the people were so impressed with Gideon's strength, the people were so impressed with Gideon's might, that they overlooked overlooked his sin they wanted to create a dynasty for Gideon but according to what we heard read earlier today by Kevin in Deuteronomy 17 Israel should long for a king that was great not in war but in morality in spirituality why was David the great king kept from building the temple of the Lord because he was a warrior because there was blood in his hands. God wants a king over Israel that is moral, that is spiritually upright. More, important, more importantly, in Deuteronomy 17, God tells Moses that the king that would be over Israel would be appointed by God himself. Not by the people. Why? Because people like you and I are usually confused about what godly leadership is. We tend to be enamored with what our eyes see, but God knows the godliness in the hearts of men. We're right now calling you to make deaconominations for our church, right? And you may be wondering, what makes for a good deacon? What is a good diaconal candidate? Who should I nominate and the answer is, you should nominate the men who are most spiritual among us. 
you should nominate men who are exuberant in godliness. Listen to what the apostle Peter tells the church in Jerusalem about the appointment of deacons. Acts 6 verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from you, from among you, by the way, this is a great case for congregationalism, isn't it? You pick. Right? The, the apostle could have appointed himself, but he doesn't do that. He tells the church to do it. You pick out from among you seven men, and what is, what is the resume that you're looking for? Of good repute. Men full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Gideon's response, however, to this request to be made a king was right at first. He said in verse 23, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon understood Deuteronomy 17. But then he proceeds to completely mess things up. Look at verse 24. And Gideon said to them, well, let me make a request of you. I don't want to be a king over you, but let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from, the, from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in, in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he had requested was a thousand or seventeen hundred shekels. That's about eighteen pounds of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants on the purple garment worn by the kings of Midian. And besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. So from one side of his mouth, Gideon says, don't make me king over you. But from the other side of his mouth, he says, but make me an ephod. Build it for me. Besides, as we are going to see in just a few verses, Gideon names his son Abimelech which means my father is king. So Gideon rejects the title of king, but he welcomes the glory. An ephod was a full-body length vest that priests wore to symbolize their authority as mediators between God and man. And that object that was supposed to bring glory to God through decadent leadership, brought idolatry to the hearts of the people of Israel. The story clearly points us back to Exodus 32. Moses is up in the mountain receiving the law. And Aaron, his brother, tells the people of Israel to give up their gold, to build an idol, a golden calf. So Aaron himself fashions the idol, builds an altar, and declares a holiday to the people so that people can worship the golden calf. Friends, the power of spiritual leadership is incredible. A whole nation corrupted 
because a leader didn't speak the truth. Corruption among the people of Israel always came from the top down. As the leader goes, so go the people. Leadership in the church must be completely distinct from the leadership in the world. Those who lead the people of God must live a life and teach a truth that always points beyond themselves towards God. But Gideon fails to point the people towards God. Look at verse 27. And Gideon, he himself made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. The people of Israel were supposed to be married to God. But they whored. They committed spiritual adultery with a golden ephod. You may ask, how can the people whore after an ephod, after a piece of clothing? Well, the answer is very simple. They looked at that garment and said, look at what we've accomplished. We've destroyed the Midianites and took their God. And this monument is an ode to our might, to our power. Israel attributed to themselves the victory that belongs to God. Israel wanted glory to self when praise to God was due. We have the same tendency. Without the work of the Spirit in us, we produce nothing good. So, are we in any way worthy of praise? The answer is no. God is worthy of praise even for the good that we do. 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God, the apostle says of himself, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, the other apostles, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me, the great weapon we have to crush any idol in our hearts is a growing awareness of the grace that God gives. When we're recognized for anything good that we have, we must be quick to point others to the grace of God that we have received. Idolatry is revealed in boasting and pride. But true humility recognizes the work of the Lord in us and through us. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? This is the rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. We have nothing that we have not received. And if you did, if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? However, it must be said that in light of all this, the overall assessment of Gideon's life is still a positive assessment. We, we've seen much evil today, but we've also seen much good. 
in verses 28, we learn that he subdued the Midianites. He won. He gave the land rest for 40 years. And we're even told that after Gideon died, then the people of Israel hoard after the Baals and the Asherahs. So that in some way, Gideon was restraining wickedness in the land. But look at verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith, that means Baal of the covenant, their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And this will lead us to our next point. The generation that followed Gideon found themselves in greater decadence. We turn our attention now in chapter 9. And we're going to meet, we're going to meet here Gideon's son. His name is Abimelech. One of the greatest desires that godly parents have is that our children will surpass us in godliness. Unfortunately, this was not true in the life of Gideon. Abimelech was one of the most wicked ruler that Israel had. Technically, Abimelech was the first king of Israel. He ruled over Israel for three years. Gideon had many wives, which is never a good thing, according to the Bible, according to biblical morality. Biblical morality requires that a man should be a one-woman man, meaning faithful to his own wife. Gideon was not. With his many wives, he had 70 sons. In addition to his many wives, Gideon had at least one Canaanite concubine, and Abimelech was the son of this concubine. Abimelech is not a judge, though a whole chapter in this book is dedicated to him. The Lord did not raise Abimelech as he's raised all the other judges. We are not introduced to him the same way that we're introduced to other judges in this book. You may ask, then why an entire chapter in the book dedicated to Abimelech? Well, the point of Abimelech's story is to show us that things keep getting worse and worse in Israel. This is the direction of the entire book. The morality of Israel is spiraling down. And as we make our way through the story, we progressively struggle to tell the difference between Israel and Canaan. Abimelech's name is ironic, as I told you earlier. His name means, my father is king. His name shows us the internal conflict in Gideon's heart. He refused to be made king, but he, makes, he names his son, my father is king. In chapter 9, Abimelech plots with his Canaanite mother and with his relatives to kill all 70 of Gideon's sons. He succeeds and was crowned king by his relatives. I can't fathom the pain of losing one child, much less 70. 
Look at verse 5. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, that's another name for Gideon, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. Now perhaps you remember the beginning of chapter 6 when we first meet Gideon. The people of Israel are in hiding. Gideon himself is, is beating the wheat in a wine press because he is hiding. After all the delivery that Gideon brought to Israel, Israel is still now in hiding. But he is not hide, Israel is not hiding because of the Midianites. Israel is now hiding because of Israel. But this remnant of Israel that is hiding, Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, will do something remarkable. In verse 7, when he realizes that all his brothers had been killed and the men of Shechem made Abimelech king over Israel, he stands on Mount Gerasim, the mount where Moses stood and proclaimed blessings and curses over Israel if Israel obeyed or disobeyed the law of God. He stands there and in a way he's proclaiming curses over Shechem and Abimelech in the form of a fable. Let's read the fable starting in verse 8. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit, and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, you come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour, devour the cedars of Lebanon. What is this saying? Great trees could have been king over you. The olive tree, the fig tree, the vine. But you chose the bramble. And the bramble promises you shade, but bramble cannot give shade. The bramble offers no food and no beauty. So because of this, you will experience the fire that comes out of the bramble, who is Abimelech. The curse is then fulfilled. Look at verse 23. And God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, 
who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. We need to take a minute here and answer the question, what does it mean that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem? Well, it means that God is a God who blesses, but he is also a God who curses. This evil spirit is sent to fulfill the will of God, which was to curse Shechem and Abimelech. Friends, if you're not a believer among us, you need to know that God is a God who blesses, but he is also a God who curses. If you're not a believer among us, you need to know that God's position towards you is not one of indifference. We're all born under a curse because of our sin. We're plagued by nature with an evil spirit. And unless we come to God through His Son, we will experience the eternal curse. An interesting feature in this chapter is the fact that the name Yahweh is not mentioned at all in chapter 9. Why is this important? Because when we forget God, we are accursed. That's the point that is being made here. Back in chapter 3, we read of Othniel, the Lord... God, the Lord gave Cushat Rashantaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. Ehud says to the people in 328, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hands. In chapter 4, verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go before you? In chapter 7, verse 9, the Lord says to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But where is the Lord that fights for Abimelech? He is not there. Abimelech in all of Israel had forgotten the Lord. And without the Lord, there is no difference between Israel and Canaan. Without God, there is no difference between us and the world. Without God, we are left to our own idolatry, to our own devices, to our own schemes. Without God, we fight our battles alone, without purpose, and without and Without God, we experience no mercy. Abimelech goes on to be challenged by a man called Ga'al. One could expect that Ga'al would now teach Abimelech a lesson. Perhaps Ga'al will bring about justice to wicked Abimelech, but he doesn't. Abimelech prevails over Ga'al, and it seems that Abimelech was wicked and invincible. At times we can think that the wicked can get away 
with murder. But friend, the justice of God may delay, but it never fails to come. After defeating Gaal, Abimelech did not have enough. So he goes on to capture another city, the city of Thebes. But let's pick up the narrative here at verse 51. But there was a strong road, there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city, the city of Thebes, fled into it and shut themselves in because they were afraid of Abimelech. And all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled into the tower. Verse 52, And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Now notice how casual verse 53 is. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Wow. Seems casual. Right? It's just a nameless woman casts a stone and destroys the great warrior. Remember in the beginning of chapter 9 that Abimelech killed all of his brothers on one stone. And here on one stone, Abimelech is destroyed. Verse 54, Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his own home. Israel is without direction. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. This is the curse of Jotham, isn't it? Just like that, killed by one stone, casually thrown from a tower. And all the glory that Abimelech desired dashed in one moment. And the curse of Jotham is fulfilled both on Abimelech and on the men of Shechem. What a hopeless way to end a story. But is it? Well, if Abimelech was the man that we're looking to, it would be a hopeless story. But the story of Abimelech points beyond itself to the story of a king who does not have his head crushed, but who crushes the head of his enemy instead. In Genesis 3.15, right after the first sin entered the world, God says to Satan, to the serpent, to the great enemy, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Interesting that Abimelech is killed by a woman in this passage, isn't it? And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. This promise would be fulfilled by the great king of Israel, Jesus Christ himself, who by dying on the cross took the curse you and I deserve for our sins and by raising, being raised victoriously, defeated 
dealt a final blow to the head of our great enemy, Satan. Just as Abimelech died under a curse, Jesus died under a curse. But Jesus' curse was not because of his wickedness. It was because of our wickedness. Jesus' curse was the curse of his people. And why did Jesus take on our curse so we could receive mercy in him? Friend, we are just like Gideon and Abimelech, selfish, vengeful, seeking to establish our own kingdom. But Jesus calls us out of the curse of sin and teaches us how to overcome our wicked nature. So friends, today I call you to come to Jesus in faith, knowing that the Bible only has one hero. It is Christ Himself. Do not look for righteousness in men. Look for righteousness in Christ. Confess your sins. Come to Jesus in faith and repentance. Today I want you to know that the mercy of God won't delay. It is already ours in Christ if we come to Him by faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we need Jesus. There are all sorts of wicked, inadequate leaders all over. Lord, we cannot fix our eyes on men. We have to fix our eyes on Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of Christ, which redeems us from the curse of sin. I pray, Father, that we rest in nothing but on the solid rock who is Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.